You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, James Turner. He's a participant in what's called the uh, Personal Genome Project. Uh, he's also a, a treasurer and a chairman of the Open Human Foundation. So James, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so tell me, what, what is the uh, Open Human Foundation? And then we'll talk about the Personal Genome Project and your involvement there. But you know, first, the Open Human Foundation. What is that? Sure. So they're actually related, so I can link one to the other because what uh, Open Human was an offshoot of um, the Personal Genome Project in some ways or a, a, um, a descendant of it. So the Personal Genome Project was started, started at Harvard Medical School by George Church, who is a well-known uh, genomics expert, uh, is quoted all the time, has done some amazing research. The idea of the Personal Genome Project was twofold. One was to increase the number of whole genome sequences, which is uh, totally sequenced genomes as opposed to 23andMe or Ancestry, which only sequenced very small parts of the genome that were mm. available. And the second part was to link that data, uh, the genotypic data, with phenotypic data, which is how the genes actually express. So do you have brown eyes? Do you have diabetes? Those types of things. Because... The idea was that if you had enough people and enough phenotypes, then you could start to um, make associations where you say all the people who have this also have that. Uh, you could do correlation. Mm, okay. So that has been going on for, I'm going to get the, the number one, but I've certainly been involved with, in it for five or six years. It's been going, I think, since uh, the early 10s or even earlier. And there are, have been gathering genomes and the key thing about it was it's what's called an open consent model, which means that by participating, you are the, the data is anonymous unless you explicitly uh, identify yourself. Uh, so okay. the idea was that people who submit their data are given consent for anyone else, uh, researchers obviously being the, the main focus, to access that data and any other data you provide. So a lot of us have done very um, extensive personal health surveys we uploaded. I uploaded 
20-something years of every doctor's visit and lab report I had ever had. Um, a lot of other researchers have, because we've already had our genome sequence, which is a used to be, it's not so much anymore, but it used to be a big part of the cost, they would do other studies with us because they already had the genome. They could just do the other thing they wanted to compare it with. So I've had my brain scanned at Randy Buckner's lab at Harvard University oh, wow. for MRI. I've had um, the American gut people have sequenced my gut microbiome a couple of times. I've had the length of my bones measured. You know, it's like, um, and all of that data is one of, one of the kind of the contractual, it's not, it's an informal contract. Uh, it's supposed to happen is if, somebody takes your does measurements on you you're supposed to get a copy of that data back and you can right. do with it as you want so i have my mri scan from that and i in fact you know uh took my 3d printer and printed a copy of my brain for fun but i also oh, really? uploaded it to um the pgp site so anyone else uh, any researcher can download my genome and that data and put it together and and look for interesting things oh that's very cool well, i was going to ask you what um what insights have you gotten that you either wanted or didn't want to get into yourself by getting all this, this work done? Um, okay. So the thing, the thing about the PGP is it's kind of an all or nothing. For any given piece of data that you upload, you either say, yes, everybody in the world can download this, can grab my, you know, I have stem cells at the New York Stem Cell Institute. I've got, you know, red blood cell or white blood cells uh, at Coriel could do whatever they want with it. I have no say on it. Um, or you say, nope, this data is private. I want to be the only one. You know, I've uploaded it, but no one can look at it but me. I want to use it to run it through some of the tools they have or something like that. So it's very binary. Um, so Open Humans was created by some of the people who were involved in the Personal Genome Project to offer a more nuanced approach. So with Open Humans, there's a couple of different uh, fronts that it's attacking. One is the idea that when you upload data to open humans, it's not available to everyone. You could make it available to everyone. You can say, I only want this project to have access to that data, or I only want to run it through this tool. And then you could decide, oh, this tool gave me some interesting information. Do I want to share that information publicly? So it gives, and, and it's also more it's than more just, flexibility. You know, it's more flexibility and also the idea is that there's a lot of other kinds of data that like Fitbit data, Apple Watch Health Kit data, people, you know, are recording your sleep now, people are recording what they eat, you know, all of this data is potentially interesting data, uh, part of a larger movement called the quantified self. Um, the other thing Open Humans is trying to do is to provide tools for getting that data uploaded. At one point, I wrote a, a tool that uploads health kit data from iPhones and iPads into the Open Humans uh, data store. There are tools uh, that, for example, I can take my genome and I can pass it through this tool and it will do what's called an imputation, which is they'll say, oh, if you've got these genes, you have this blank spot that didn't get sequenced, but we can guess what's in there based on what did get sequenced. Um, there's another tool called Genevieve that Madball, the uh, executive director of uh, Open Humans was involved in writing that will go through all the research papers out there and find for all of the, the variations you have in your genome, what that means as much as anything means anything. And now I could bring it back around to the question you just asked, which is especially for the genome, um, the 
amount of useful information you're going to get out is limited. Um, well, there quick are, question. This leads back to the, yeah. the 23andMe. Why do yeah. they only sequence a small part of the genome, and what are they hoping to gain, and why do they leave out the whole thing? Okay, so they don't actually sequence. That's kind of the... There, there is a thing you could get from 23andMe for a lot more money called an exome sequence, which is they actually do go and sequence the parts of your genome that express proteins, um, which is about, I think, a third of your genome. The rest of it is other things. Some of it is quote-unquote junk. Some of it is actually non-coding for proteins, but has a useful purpose, what we call regulatory portions that control how those genes get expressed. And those are important too. But what you get for your 100 bucks or $50 or whatever, the sale price from any of these things like uh, Ancestry or 23andMe are what are called SNPs. Uh, which stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. And we can break that down. Single means one. Uh, nucleotide are the individual bases of the, the DNA. So it's a single letter. And polymorphism is chain. So what you're getting from them is about a million, between 800,000 and a million, points on your genome, which are interesting for some reason. Sometimes they're interesting because they themselves are um, meaningful in terms of they predict or are causal in some way for something about you, something about your phenotype. Sometimes they're just close to and said to travel along with a piece of DNA. So if you've got that change, you probably also have this change that is important. So it's like a marker. And they don't actually sequence. They have this array, uh, this tiny little chip. I've in fact got one my son gave because he's in biotech on my desk. And they put a little bit of your DNA in each one. And the, there are little hooks almost at the end that only match up to certain parts of the DNA. And if they match up there, they fluoresce in one color. And if they match the other way, they fluoresce another color. And then they basically read the colors. So in a full sequence, they're actually going letter by letter and reading it. In these, they're kind of just looking for specific points of your genome. And to give you an idea, I'm going to try not to blow this. So they do about a million. I think there's something like 4 billion um, individual calls, individual letters in a human genome. So it's a very small percentage of the whole genome. So what are any, any particular insights you've gotten from all the work you've done, again, all the, all the lab work? Um, well, from the genome itself, I got a couple of things. I mean, there are here's where the kind of uh, car disclaimer stuff comes in. Your mileage may vary. So... A lot of people think about the way genes influence you as what we call Mendelian characteristics. So there are a few, there are classic ones like eye color, right? Or um, some blood type or certain others where one or very few single points in the genome decide these things. So, you know, the classic example, right? You have brown eyes, it, it follows the Mendelian laws. So a quarter of the time you have someone who has brown eye genes on both. Half the time, you've got someone who has a brown IG and a non-brown IG, and the last half is people who are blue-blue. That's if two people who are, are mixed varies. That's called a Mendelian characteristic after George Mendel and his peas. Right, okay. Most things, yeah, most things are much more nuanced than that. So there are some classic things. A lot of the very heritable diseases that you hear about, uh, I'm not going to remember if these are single or not or if they're whole gene, but... Tay-Sachs, sickle cell anemia, things like that, are kind of like that. Most things aren't. Most things are 
hundreds of genes or tens of genes all influencing it. So, and, and not in these large effect sizes. So it's not like a yes, no. It's a, oh yeah, if you've got this, it increases your chances by 5%. And even then it won't be 5% absolute. Like, you know, if I have, if I have this and I had a 20% chance, now I have a 25% chance. Be like, okay, your chances of getting is 1% overall. If you've got this, then it's one times 1.05, so, you know, 1.05% chance of getting it. So, so how are we supposed to find correlations then if they're so weak seeming and so dependent on the person? Right. And, and that's the challenge. Um, I will say that one thing that did come out is I've had trouble with alcohol my whole life, not like alcoholism, like it doesn't take very much until I don't start to feel well when I drink alcohol. And it turns out that there's a, a enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase, which is one of the primary early steps in alcohol metabolism in your body. Uh, like everyone else, I have two copies, one from my mother and one from my father. One of those two copies has what's called a missense mutation. So basic, you know, uh, genomics uh, review here. Your DNA, each three letters codes for an amino acid. The amino acids form together to make protein. There's a special code, three-letter code, there's a couple of them, called stops that say this is where the protein ends because the thing that, that creates it, the ribosome, needs to know when the protein ends. About halfway through one of my two copies of that gene, uh, I've got to stop where I stood. So what it produces, what that copy of the uh, enzyme gets produced, uh, it's misformed. It's not a proper en protein enzyme. It won't do what it's supposed to. And that kind of explains why me and alcohol have never had a great relationship. Interestingly, it also has somewhat of a correlation in some studies with Parkinson's. And given that my uncle died of Parkinson's, that's something for me to watch out for. But that kind of leads back into your question. I'm not, it doesn't say you're going to get Parkinson's. It says there's an increased chance. And the challenge for the medical community, because I can talk to my doctor about this as well, I'm not really sure. And he's a smart guy. I'm not really sure what actionable we can do with this. I can, you know, you could say, okay, maybe I need to make sure I get long care long-term care insurance, or maybe if there are some things that have, you know, proven, you know, study proven things that seem to alleviate Parkinson's, maybe I want to start eating more of those or avoiding certain things. But many of these things are very small increases, increases or even for big ones, like I, I know some people have a 55% absolute chance based on their genome of getting uh, macular degeneration as they age. Um, again, all you can do is be vigilant. That, that's something that's treatable. Um, so, you know, it probably means you want to go to the doctor more often. But for, you know, a lot of these polymorphism changes uh, that you see, we don't know if they're meaningful. We can guess sometimes because we can say it's not in the middle of something that codes for a protein. Maybe it's not as important. But again, even some of those things that are upstream of a gene can be regulatory and maybe you're not producing enough of that. So there's still a lot of work going on. So you think there'll be clear correlations or is it going to be just predispositions towards this, that, or the other? Or what do you think it's going to be? It, it will be a mix. I think the vast majority are going to be 
to some extent, influencers rather than verdicts in and of themselves. One of the interesting things that's going on, the Personal Genome Project is one example. There's something called the Thousand Genomes Project. Uh, Open Humans is obviously involved with this kind of data sharing. And now there's a huge government effort uh, called All of Us, being run by the National Institute of Health, where they are gathering together a million people and tracking them. I'm, a, I'm also a participant in that. And they've taken their blood and they're tracking them and they're presumably going to try to sequence as many of them as they can, given that sequencing has gotten dirt cheap now. It's but not mean nearly cheap, meaning a thousand bucks or how much is it? Dirt cheap meaning that uh, I got mine recently for $300 and I just got an offer for long read sequencing, which is even more effective for a thousand dollars. Normally, the way they do sequencing is they chop it up into bits that are about two to 400 letters long, uh, and then they sequence each one of those, and then they basically put it back together against the scaffold of what they know the genome looks like. But what that misses is you can have long repeats, like you can have 500 copies of the same three-letter sequence, and someone else might have 450. And if you're chopping them up like that, you can't really tell how many copies you have. Uh, so now what you're getting more of Why can't is you tell if you're... If you're piecing them together, why can't you tell them? How do I know the different? All right, let's say that, let's just imagine, try to visualize this. So you've got one of these long repeat sequences that starts at one and it ends at a thousand base pairs, right? So you're chopping these things up into 250 base pair chunks, okay? How do you know how many of those are in the middle? Because you've got all these chunks that are identical floating around from where the copies. So you can't tell you know, if there were five copies, two copies, or one copy, because it would all look the same. It would be the same fragment of DNA floating around. And that's the major weakness of these short read technologies, which is most of what people get now. The, the Wait, but do you mean that they're not connecting them properly? If I get 300 uh, base pair chunks, could they no, be no. misinterpreting how they go together? Or how is there a loss of information? Right. Normally, they can. Um what you'd have to imagine is imagine that you had a, let's take a, a jigsaw puzzle, okay? Only it's, it's a linear jigsaw puzzle, so it's only got one set going across. And imagine you've got in the middle a whole bunch of pieces that are identical. They're black pieces, and they have the same piece at the beginning and the end, okay? So that, those are the chunks, okay? If I gave you five or six jigsaw puzzles, most of the time you could figure it out because you know the, this color variation, whatever. Or if I, if I gave you the standard one, you could say, okay, this color goes here because I have to go next to this thing. But you get to this long black section in the middle and you know that different people have different lengths of that. How many of those black pieces do you put in there? You don't know, you've got multiple. Because when, when they chop up the DNA, they're not just chopping up one string. They're chopping up a string and then making huge numbers of copies of each piece so that they can do these tests. So. So you can, you can remake the puzzle in the wrong way if you have a lot of right. these repeats that are longer than right. well, you, you you'll, you'll get the order right because we know, you know, most of the time those 250 pair things are unique enough that we can scaffold them. This is all the technology, by the way, that Craig Ventner came up with. It's called shotguns. But when you've got all these long, identical pieces, you don't know how many are in it. However, as I mentioned, I just got an offer from a lab saying, oh, the same guys who did my $300 sequence, saying, oh, by the way, for $1,000, we'll 20,000 pair read. So it, instead of just two or 300 or 400 
at a time. They're going to read 20,000. So when you've got that kind of a language. I guess the holy grail is you can read read the whole thing all at once, 3 billion. Well, yeah, yeah. to some extent, how they did the original one, it's called, the original way they did it was called Sanger sequencing. And that was kind of like a letter at a time. But I mean, realistically, you know, 20,000 is good enough because there's not a lot of, there's probably any, I'm not an expert in this, but there probably aren't a lot of places in your genome where you're going to get that length of repeat that maybe at the end where you've got your right, years, which, right. so um so now that they've got this million people they've got or they're working away toward a million people they've got um these uh they're they're contributing their phenotypes they're working in cooperation with uh medical uh establishments uh, for example partners healthcare in boston which is massachusetts general hospital and some of the others uh is actively um, soliciting people, recruiting people to get involved in it, um, that gives you the ability to do what's called whole genome, genome-wide GWASH. And what that is, is taking a large sample, saying this group of people do have it, this group of people don't have it, what is different about them? And it involves a lot of hairy statistics because between any two people, you know, uh, I think it's 97% of the of their it's even 97 to 99 point something percent of their genome is identical. But even that small percentage difference, when you're talking 4 billion individual letters, is a huge number. So, you know, any two people are going to have a lot of differences. So you have to first look for the differences that everyone seems to have in common and then look at what where that difference appears and say, does this make sense? Is the thing that is different in a section of your genome that expresses a protein or moderates a protein that has something to do with what we're seeing. Um, and again, even there, because a lot of these things are not yes, no's, they're a little bit more, a little bit less, that's where you need the really beefy statistics because you're looking for these mild to moderate effect sizes and saying, okay, so this one change will have some effect. So are you, are you also... I mean, I don't know if you've taken that upon yourself to help other people to get this done and then alleviate their fear, because I would think a lot of people say, I don't want to know, you know, something terrible, but if there's really just weak correlations or predispositions, then maybe they feel better. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's a couple of factors. in here. I, I know people who have said they don't want to do it because they don't know. Largely, the people who say that are people who are in families that have histories of things that we now have a fairly good grasp on. So people who have schizophrenia, there are some good links we're starting to find out for schizophrenia. People who have, you know, some of the breast cancers, the BRCA1 and 2, you know, uh, there are some things for Alzheimer's, some correlated genes for Alzheimer's now. Uh, so their concern, I think, is breast cancer is different to some extent because, um, you know, there are people who have proactive had mastectomies and things like that because they had uh, some of the BRCA1 and BRCA2 polymorphisms that have high risk. But for something like Alzheimer's, it does say, okay, so now I have this high likelihood because some of these things do have fairly high power that I'm going to have this thing. And the, the concern is now, now are you going to live your life differently? You're going to live in dread. My personal feeling is First of all, if you know about it, you could be proactive and make changes, even if it's just to watch for it so it doesn't come up on you. You know, uh, as far as the other thing is, 
Okay, just because today we don't have anything to do about it, it's a prop for you. Okay, good. This is something I want to help. You know, maybe I want to become a research subject studying the progression of it and seeing if I'm one who, or who, who does or doesn't. Um, maybe, you know, I want to keep an eye out for early, you know, treatments or, you know, preventative measures that they come up. If you're just walking around blind, then, you know, you have no idea, you know, you, you can't say, oh, I should take this supplement because, or this drug because you know, I know I have high cholesterol. I take a drug for high cholesterol. I think it's going to be similar that, you know, I, I know I have a predilection for this. There are things I need to do, exercise, weight loss, or, or take some supplement or take some drug that, you know, can improve my odds. I understand that. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. What do you find in general that most people are resistant, or you know, some are willing, some are not? I mean, what does it look like with the people you talk to? Right. Well, the interesting thing is that, and one of the things that encourages me about the All of Us program that the NIH is uh, running is they are outreaching into communities that traditionally have not participated in these kinds of studies because. Um, the traditional people involved in things like the PGP are middle-aged, affluent, well-educated, and then not so much, but still more trending white men. Um, and, you know, that is an interesting piece of the genome, but it's kind of like the old joke that psychology is the study of, of undergraduate psychology, because that's where a lot of these studies have drawn their pools from. Um, so getting a more diverse sample with larger differences in the genome is a good thing. The challenge has been that when you start talking about the genome uh, and people's genes, uh, there's a kind of a convergence of a lot. Of, uh, in addition to the, am I going to find out something I didn't want to know? I was just reading the other day about someone who did an Ancestry.com and discovered that their father wasn't their father. And, you know, that kind of thing can happen. Uh, right. But yeah. even, even beyond that, um, you know, there are the, the government's going to get my genes type of thing and, and fears about what's going to happen to your genome. You know, are they going to create a clone of me or, you know, so, and, and you don't have to go too far back to see where that happened. You know, there's the famous case of Henrietta, sorry, Henrietta, I'm going to get the name right. Henrietta Lacks, Henrietta, yeah. Henrietta Lacks, thank you. Uh, who, you know, the HeLa cell line, which was done without her consent. And those of us who are in the personal genome project gave our consent for researchers, you know, if they find an interesting protein in my genome that's unique to me or and, and use it to make a drug and make millions of dollars, I said, that's fine. You know, I, I signed off on that. But I think there are people who are concerned about, you know, we know that 23andMe and some of these other companies, you know, are taking people's responses to questionnaires. Again, it's with consent and um, using them to create you know, a lot of the research they're doing. They've published a lot of papers based on uh, doing these associations between what people respond and what they see in that much smaller segment of the genome they sample. So, and then people are worried that if they find something, you know, they won't be able to get insurance, they won't be able to be employed. Um, you know, if you have one of these predilections for uh, cancer, you know, should a company let you work in any place where you're exposed to chemicals that might increase your risk. That's addressed a little bit by GINA, the, uh, which is the government uh, legislation which protects people from uh, discrimination on the basis of employment or health insurance, but it doesn't, for example, cover life insurance. Um, so I think there are valid questions about how 
this data is exposed and how it's used. But at the same time, if we don't share the data, then we're going to have these very small 500, 1,000 person data sets, and we won't have the power we need to find these interesting correlations. In Europe, some countries are just wholesale, the National Health Service is just wholesale sequencing everybody, and they have their records. Because With consent or without consent? Um, I think some places are doing it at birth now. So I don't know what the details, I don't know if there's an opt out there, but um, you know, you could argue back and forth here, but the advantage they have is because it's a centralized national health system, they have all their medical records in one place. It's not like HIPAA in the U.S. where it takes an act of Congress to get your medical records from one place to another. They've got them all in one place. Now they have the genomes and they can presumably say, oh, over 40 years, we saw that people with this you know, change in their genome had these outcomes. Uh, and do it on millions and millions of people. And you can say, as long as that's done for good and not for evil, then, um, you know, that gives them a, a big leg up. Because to do that in the U.S., you need something like all of us. And then even then, they don't, they don't have access to my medical records because my personal health system isn't, isn't integrated in with them. So only things I self-report to them are going to show up. Um, do you think that, um, so most of the fears that people have are, more urban legend type stuff and unfounded? Or, would, you know, out of all I, the fears, which you think are the most valid? I, I think the most valid fear is if you are a bad person doing bad things, the likelihood that, you know, some piece of DNA that you leave at the scene of the crime is going to identify back to you has never been higher. Not even because you have been genotyped, but because, you know, one of your cousins, I mean, we saw this in California, right? I mean, it's getting easier and easier to identify people because people, other people put stuff on Ancestry.com or 23andMe. And so then the government just uploads or, or law enforcement just uploads a, you know, the DNA they've gotten says, oh, who's my cousin? And finds those people and then says, oh, hey, do you know anybody who lives in this town and, you know, likes to steal roses from people's houses? So that, that is a very real uh, concerned, and we need to have a discussion about under what circumstances law enforcement should be able to do these kind of fishing expeditions into these public genomic repositories. Um, I kind of make the joke that because I've published my full genome, I've got the perfect alibi because if anybody ever discovers, you know, my DNA at the scene of a crime, I say, ah, see, someone just synthesized it from from my published data and left it there as a red herring. So that wasn't me, but. You know, joking aside, um, you know, we, we do need to have a discussion about the extent to which, you know, people are allowed to to do this, because it's to some extent as if your family could upload enough of your fingerprints. So if you left a fingerprint somewhere, the police would know whose family you belonged. You know, fingerprints don't work that way, but DNA does. Yeah, interesting. So even if you never get yourself sequenced, but the relative does, or if enough people do, it could lead to you being uh, discovered for a crime. Yeah, I mean, not that. Yeah, that has happened. And, you know, and then you have to ask the question, okay, well, is it necessarily a bad thing if they catch rapists and murderers and things like that? But as we know, you know, your friendly government today may not always be friendly. And that's where I think a lot of the concern from certain segments comes from, because if you already distrust the government, then this just seems like another way that they're going to have their, their kind of finger on. You. Uh, I think that that will only happen to the extent we let it happen. Uh, we don't live in a dictatorship. 
you know, in, in some countries that are dictatorships, maybe if everyone would, you know, was, was sequenced or a large number of people were sequenced, that could be used as a tool of repression. But I I think, you know, you could make that argument about a, a lot of things. You know, you would, you would kind of stop giving blood tests and all sorts of things if you believe that the government had, had, had malicious access to everything that you, you know, provided for medical purposes. So what kind of conversations do you have with other people that are in the Open Human, Open Human uh, Foundation and people that are getting this done? Well, I mean, what's cool to see is the traditional model of how research works is there are researchers and there are subjects. And I call them subjects rather than participants because they don't really participate beyond giving some data. And then they never hear from it again, or if they're lucky, they get a copy of the paper when it's published, or they get a website they can look at, but they're not really cooperating with it. They're just agreed to give data. Both the Personal Genome Project and Open Humans are a much more collaborative affair between scientists and researchers and interested individuals. It's much more of a citizen science uh, activity where Again, I've written tools to um, let people upload data. People have written tools. And these people are not PhD, you know, biochemists. Some of us are just software engineers or interested third parties. Some of them are, you know, people with backgrounds in molecular chemistry and things like that. But everybody knows each other. Uh, We have a Slack channel where we have researchers and participants involved in it. Uh, We elect community members to the board so that um, I was not a community board member. I ran for a community board member, but um, I was appointed instead. Um, And those could be people who, again, are researchers or are participants who just have an interesting take on things. Uh, One of the women named Dana, who is on our board, is the person who's been developing her own artificial uh, pancreas to deal with her uh, diabetes, uh, making the feedback between a implanted oh, wow. monitor and an implanted uh, dosing uh, device. So, you know, just really interesting group of people. We all write tools. We all, we don't all write tools, but a lot of us write tools. We all discuss how, um, how to interpret the data. Uh, there's a conference every year called GET for Genes, Environments, and Traits that invites both the researchers and the participants to come and kind of hang out together. And traditionally, the day before, all the researchers want to gather data, just kind of, we have like a data palooza where uh, one minute you're getting your bones measured and the next minute you're taking a cognitive test and the next minute the American gut people are asking you to take a swab into the bathroom and don't ask. So, you know, I've never seen so many people go in and out of a bathroom you know, holding a, a test tube and a swab before. So you have um, uh, conventions where everyone gets together or what kind of meetup? Yeah, well, it's, it's a conference more than a convention. But, you know, you, you'll have 100, 100, you know, participants show up both to hear about the research being done and to talk about, you know, uh, what's going on. But also it's a good one-stop shopping location to get data from us. Is it is the conference have a particular name, a branded name? Is it yeah, yeah, yeah. Open it's human conference? Yes. Yeah. It's called GET for genes, environments, and traits. Oh, GET. Okay. I didn't hear you. Yeah. How often do you uh, get together and in what cities and, and, and how big yeah. a thing is it? It's run in Boston. It's run in Europe. They did one on the West Coast. I don't know if there's any plans to do one uh, this year yet, but, you know, I will say it's a lot of fun when, when we do because uh, you eat really interesting people. I'm, we, we got to hear from someone who was diagnosed with a brain cancer 
switched their career path entirely, got enough training that they could actually go work in a lab researching that brain cancer. Wow, that's because, great. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's a really interesting. And, you know, we sit around okay. and we snooze all day about science in general. You know, if you go look at our Slack channel, it's, we talk about science, we talk about you know, uh, new new studies and new products, and are they snake oil or are they not snake oil? You know, so there was something today about can can your genome predict your income, and we all kind of just rolled our eyes at that. So you know, it, it's an interesting place to to share thoughts and to get kind of a group opinion on what's true and or or likely and what isn't. Um, talk about, you know, we had a lot of talk when they had the Chinese researcher who was making, uh, using CRISPR to change uh, germline uh, embryos for those girls and, you know, the pluses and minuses of that. If you're at all interested in this kind of stuff, it's a way you can both participate and learn a lot. So, yeah, what's the best way for people to dip their toe in or dip their, uh, you know, part of their sequence in, is a bad joke, uh, and get involved right. and, you know, get into this world? Right. So you could go to um, a couple of places. You could go to openhumans.org, which is uh, the Open Humans Foundation. You could go to, uh, let me make sure I get, the problem with the PGP is PGP also stands for pretty good privacy, the encryption software. So you have to actually, like Google for personal genome project. The global network is personalgenomes.org because it's actually a collaboration of a bunch of global network partners. Uh, but if you go to personalgenomes.org, you'll find links for the local countries. So, for example, uh, the Harvard PGP is the one in the United States. And interestingly, if you already have 23andMe or Ancestry.com data or have perhaps paid to have a full genome sequence done, you could just upload it. There's no uh, requirement that they do it. And in fact, they encourage people just for cost reasons now to donate their own sequences. Uh, you can donate Fitbit data. You can donate, you know, any kind of interesting data you've got. Again, the two kind of work to get together to some extent. So you could get your data from the PGP and put it into the Open Humans database and then feed that through interesting tools that they have. Uh, so really starting with either one of those is a good place to start. Open Humans is a little bit more general about um, all the different things you can do with all the different kinds of data you've got. So that's probably a good place to start. Well, very good. Well, James, uh, very cool. And uh, I guess last question is, um, are there any tests or assessments that you want to get that you haven't gotten yet that you think will be particularly interesting? Well, I'd like to do the long read. I, I haven't just spent, you know, 300 bucks of my own money for the short read, um, holding off for a while, hoping it comes down in price a little bit more or they have a sale. But I'd like to get the long read done because uh, then I will have, in fact, three genomes because I had one done by the one done by Dante Labs and all of that. I would have to have a third one. And it would be like the joke about the guy with, you know, two watches, never knows what time it is. I would have three genomes, so I would never be quite sure what any given call was. I guess I could take best two out of three. Um, I would like, there was a fun one that uh, I could have participated in, but it was just a little bit too uh, involved, which is I could have flown down to Atlanta, and they would have taken every single, I believe, every single white blood cell out of my body to uh, do what's called uh, the immunome. You, you get them back in a couple of days. Uh, the immunome, which is the what all of your white blood cells are primed to react um, so that they can kind of study the whole universe of the antigens that they are set up to do. Beyond that, I think what I really want is more interpretative data on what I've already got. You know, I'd, I'd like more interesting correlations that can help me guide my health. 
Yeah, well, it's coming, as you said. You just taste it. Right. I mean, the thing is that the difference between, for example, and, and one of the reasons I think that it's going to become very common, probably a routine lab test, to get your whole genome sequence now that it's not just pricing. I mean, it's cheaper than a lot of blood tests now. And if you're getting like your um, blood sugar or your white blood count or something like that, you have to do that over and over, right? Because it changes over time. The genome you have now is, is largely the genome you're going to have for your entire life. So you spend the like that's 400 true. bucks now, and that's going to be, you know, you may, they may get better at sequencing it, longer reads or higher reliability, but it's not going to change. So, you know, you do it once and it will only start to give you more information as time goes on and more and more of these correlations are generated and they find positive effects on them. And then, oh, all of a sudden I know this thing I didn't know before. Okay, it makes sense. Well, very good. Well, James, I appreciate you coming in. Very interesting what you're uh, you're involved in. So, uh, yeah, thanks for shedding light on all this stuff. It was my pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.